Hello, and welcome to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. In this fifth of a seven-part series, Dorje Lopan Dr. Han Lai teaches about the bardo, or intermediate state between death and birth, through an exploration of Padmasambhava's root verses of the six bardos. This text is part of the great liberation upon hearing, revealed by Karmalingpa, often known in the West as the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Urban Dharma is a Buddhist temple in the heart of Asheville, North Carolina. We are supported by your generosity and by our online store, tibetanspirit.com. To learn more about us, come visit our temple in person or look us up online at udharmanc.com. Thanks for listening. So before we uh, continue in, uh, to finish up these uh, six root verses on the Bardo. Uh, we will begin by uh, doing a very short uh, practice. Uh, this practice I think most of you are familiar with. Uh, it's the mantra of compassion. It's the mantra of uh, the uh, Buddha of compassion, Avalokiteshvara. Um, so this mantra is called the six-syllable mantra. Uh, it's actually very much related to Bado uh, teachings as well. Especially it is said that uh, these six syllables uh, can purify and uh, can purify the uh, obscurations of beings in the six realms. So the six syllables, Om, Ma, Ni, Pad, Me, Hong. These six, uh, each syllable uh, functions to purify uh, the obscurations of beings. Uh, Om is the uh, godly realms. Ma uh, is the Ashura realm. Ni is the human realm. Bud uh, is the animal realm. Me is the hungry ghost realm. Uh, Hung is the um, hell realm. Uh, so then what it also does, what this mantra also does, is that if we cultivate this mantra, one of the effects of it is that um, then when we enter what is known as uh, the bardo of Dharmata, uh, the fifth bardo, uh, and into the sixth bardo, the bardo of becoming. Uh, the bardo of becoming is basically at the stage of the bardo where uh, it's time for you to take rebirth in one of these six realms. Uh, but at this point, uh, if you have not been, if you have not uh, achieved liberation, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that, the possibilities of liberation during these bargos. But if you have not achieved liberation at that point, then in the bardo of becoming, these six syllables can, uh, they say, block block rebirths into these six realms. 
normally we say we want rebirth uh, into the human realm, of course. Uh, but here the idea of blocking uh, the doors to the six realms is so that when the doors to the six realms are all blocked, then that only leaves one possibility. And that possibility is the, uh, to leave these six realms completely. And so even in the bardo of becoming, there is still an opportunity uh, to be liberated to be freed from confusion. So the, the whole idea for each of these bardo, the six bardos, or the system of four bardos, it covers the same range of uh, from birth to death to beyond, uh, to the next birth. Mm, the key point is that at any point in these six bardos, uh, liberation is possible. Now, how easy or how hard it is, is another matter. So, you could say that the possibility is always there. The probability is a whole different question. So, it's always possible. Is it likely? Well, it depends on you. <laughs> it depends on each of us. So, so to cultivate the six-syllable mantra is uh, principally to cultivate uh, compassion, right? Uh, but then Buddhist compassion uh, is not just a feeling. And Buddhist compassion, or what we call great compassion, uh, is actually compassion that is informed by, or underlying that compassion, is wisdom. Often we read, we come across this phrase, great compassion, pei in Chinese, right? And I think for most of us, we think that means compassion that is very, very big. Right? Most of us think like that. Oh, what is the difference between just pei and pei, or compassion and great compassion? Then we just think, oh, great compassion just means very, very big compassion. Actually, that's not the definition of great compassion. Uh, actually, there's a funny story. Um, I, this is a woman in Taiwan. Uh, one time we were having dinner in Taiwan uh, for Wanshan people. And this woman was telling this story to uh, the table. And uh, because the, another senior monk there, Xing Ding Hersang, was eating, we were eating with him. And this Xing Ding Hersang asked this lady, Oh, have you seen Dasu lately? So, so I could tell, you know, they are quite close in the inner circle. Me, I was just accidentally there, as we say, you know, just accidentally there, you know. And the woman, then they started talking, then the woman told this very funny story. And she said, you know, at the beginning she said, I know nothing about Buddhism. So she said, so embarrassing the first time she said, I met Tasu. Uh, after the interview and everything, 
Then on the way out, then Tasu said uh, something in Mandarin like, "Niman yao na no no no." Then he called his his attendant. He said, "China, nega da bei shui gei you know so and so." Then this woman said, "Oh, pa pa pa, xiao bei jiao hao la, xiao bei jiao hao." <laughs> yeah, so so here, well, not big glass or small glass. Also, you know, when we say great compassion, it's not just compassion that is very very big. It's not. It doesn't mean compassion for all beings, huh? because there are so many beings. Then, if you have compassion for all the beings, then it's Great compassion, then it's tape. Actually, no. Actually, great compassion has a very specific meaning to it. Most of the time, people don't know these things because we don't study the text anymore. Uh, we just spend time listening to other people entertaining us with dharma. <laughs> you know, so then we know nothing about you know what the text actually said. Uh, so, like today, my teacher is teaching up at Tanxia. Uh, it's almost word by word the whole text. The text is about this thing, you know, <laughs> and he's going word by word. Then other people are getting impatient. They said, "Rinpoche, I think you should just give an overview." Then Rinpoche said, "If if we keep giving overview, who will ever understand anything about the Dharma?" Then they said, "Oh, Rinpoche, but people will get disinterested and go away." He said, "I'm not here to make people interested." <laughs> He said, "I'm here to teach the Dharma, so that's my job. The rest, you have to worry about it. It's not my problem." <laughs> so that is real, you know, great compassion. Why? I'll explain. What makes that great? You know, then the rest of us no ability to have great compassion because we are still very concerned. You know, if there are people out there listening or not. You know, someone like Rinpoche said, "That's not my problem." <laughs> Whether people are interested or not, that's their business. That's their karma. Uh, then we say, "Oh, this is really great compassion. What makes it great?" According to the definition uh, in Madhyamaka Avatara, which is uh, by Chandakirti, one of the great Indian masters, uh, he says that uh, there are. Three types of compassion. There is the regular compassion, there is the middling compassion, and there is what we call great compassion. The regular compassion is the compassion that we have for beings, for beings. So that's called regular compassion. Middling compassion is the compassion that we have. Even when we are able to, even when we have reached the knowledge, the understanding that there is no real person there, or there, or there, or there, or there, or there. Even when we can, we can fully, you know, when I'm standing in front of someone, understand it's just nama rupa. Huh? It's just nama rupa. It's just 
five skandhas. So even understanding that there is no person there, compassion is still directed at something as impersonal as namarupa. That is middling compassion. Great compassion is the compassion that is still there when the emptiness of the skandhas have been realized. So even when you know that even the skandhas, even namarupa is relative, is not ultimate. So they call this uh, referenceless compassion. Compassion where there is no subject, no thought of subject, that I am having compassion for you. No subject, no object, and no act. All those three are free. So in the Jing, in the Diamond Sutra, it teaches that, that kind of compassion. Because Bodhisattvas understand that ultimately, there are no no essences. So there is no one suffering actually. And yet, they continue to have compassion. That is the definition of great compassion. So it's great, it's made great by the wisdom, the wisdom realization. So great compassion is not great emotion. Sometimes we, we see someone all oh, crying because they cannot stand seeing suffering. Then we say, oh, that is great compassion. No, that's not great compassion. That's just regular compassion at best. Okay. Great compassion is compassion that uh, wisdom, wisdom is present. When someone this is the story is told in uh, this book by Sogyal Rinpoche, Tibetan Book of the Living and Dying. He said that when he uh, arranged a meeting for one of his students uh, to meet his teacher, Digo Kensei Rinpoche, and this student has been told that she has a terminal disease and that he, she has you know this amount of time to live. So, so Sogyal Rinpoche arranged for her to meet his teacher. This was his teacher, Dingokian Rinpoche's like first visit to the West. So they introdu- he introduced her to his teacher. Then his teacher said, the first thing his teacher said after hearing the whole story, his teacher said, okay, now tell her, uh, please understand and know and accept that you will die. So Sogyal Rinpoche thought, oh my god, I cannot translate that. <laughs> you know? And so he was stuck, you know? He was thinking, uh, so he was thinking, should I translate it into something else? Then he said, in the end, no, he trusts, you know? He said, well, this is what my guru said, I have to say. So he translated that. And he said, at first, you know, the woman was really shocked. And then, of course, Rinpoche you know, went on to say, mm. and uh, also know that and accept and understand that 
uh, I will also die. And then he pointed at Soga and Richard, and he will also die. And everybody that you know will die. So first you have to accept that. If you cannot accept that, then whatever time they say you have left will just be suffering. So do you want to suffer all the way to death? Or do you want to be free from suffering? If you want to be free from suffering, you have to accept that we're going to die. When you're going to die, nobody actually knows. The doctor might say this month, that month, three months, six months, nine months, three years, 30 years. Who knows? Maybe the doctor will die before you die. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> right? Unless in extreme cases where we take our own lives. Other than that, you know. Sometimes even people who take their own lives, first time not successful, also cannot die. <laughs> so you just, no idea when we're going to die. And when we then begin to realize, then he's, Richard said to her, then uh, you think you have three months, whatever the doctor said. Uh, just because the doctor did not tell me I have only three months, doesn't mean, you know, I have more than three months. Maybe I have three weeks left, who knows? And the point is, nobody knows. So in a way, uh, it's a blessing. If the doctor's words are true, then you're very lucky because you know exactly supposedly when you're going to die. Then now you can start preparing. Settle all your affairs. Once you know that you're going to die, once you know, even if you, they tell you when you're going to die, then in a way, you know, you're freed. Habis. <laughs> what else to worry about? <laughs> you know, then start. Start making sure you are happy, other people are happy, you know. You only worry until, you know, when it gets close to when you're supposed to die, your money dies first. <laughs> then people around you also worry, you know. Alama, yeah. oh, got to feed this person. <laughs> but actually, you know, I don't know, you know, if I, when I get into that situation, if I'll laugh or not, but hopefully, with enough training, you know, that should be the response, you know, like, really? Uh, so this is great compassion because it's compassion that comes with wisdom. Uh, not telling lies. Like, oh, don't worry, don't worry, everything will be fine, everything will be fine. Really? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, in the big picture, yes, everything is fine. Nothing actually happens. In the limited picture, then we have all kinds of problems. Uh, if we want to limit our minds uh, to the problem, then every moment that we are around, we can only think of problems. Yeah? If you have three cats that don't get along, should you put the three cats in a closet 
and get in there together with the three cats? You say, of course not. But that's what we do. That's what we do. We lock ourselves in the closet with three crazy cats. The three poisons. So when you lock the three crazy cats in the closet together with you, they will fight, they will claw, and you are going to be the innocent bystander that gets injured. Right? So that's how we, uh, unfortunately, relate to problems that we face. Whether it's sickness, whether it's people not getting along, whether it's you not getting along with yourself, <laughs> you not getting along with other people, uh, those sorts of things are like these crazy cats. So when you have another crazy cat, you're already in the closet, locked up in there with three crazy cats, then some other cat is coming on the outside, you open the door and say, ha, come in. <laughs> That's what we do. That means we, 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 we let these problems surround us. Then we complain. Oh, why? Then try to SMS someone to come save us. But what that means, our minds huh, are so narrow. And that's why we suffer. So our minds are like that closet. But imagine you take away the four walls of the closet. And now you are in a big field. And then all the cats can run around. <laughs> then they'll stop fighting. Give it a lot of space. When you give it a lot of space, all the crazy cats will also settle down. They all have their own place. When you open it up, they might still fight a little. But once they realize that, oh, there is so much space, then they run off. Then you can just sit there and watch. Then that is when we allow space into our lives. When faced with any kind of problems, always remember that space and there's so much space but our habit is such that we don't allow that space instead we keep inviting more crazy cats into our closet then we become all crazy so this practice of the six syllable is also a method to create space. So you let the heart open. In this case, yeah, uh, this six syllable mantra uh, is, uh, is an old tune that I'm going to use. It's called the Eight Petal Lotus. It's a traditional tune within one tradition, the Jigongkagyu, there is this tune called the Eight Petal Lotus. Uh, the legend says one of the previous heads of the lineage uh, had an experience where he was uh, 
transported uh, to I uh, don't remember, maybe it's Pemasambhava Guru in Bridges Pure Land or some, something like that. And when he arrived there, he heard uh, this tune being used to sing the sixth syllable. And so, so he was taught by the Bodhisattvas in that Pure Land. And then when he returned, when he woke up, then he taught that tune to his students. So then that tune has been handed down from generations. Mm. And here you will hear actually seven syllables. The last one is Hri. Uh, but the Hri syllable is not an extra syllable. The Hri syllable is the seed syllable. Out of the Hri syllable, the six syllables appear. The six syllables are produced from the main syllable, Hri. So you'll hear seven syllables. But these seven syllables will be repeated in the cycles of eight. Uh, the tune is such that the first three times, uh, they're quite flat. Yeah? They're, they're kind of repeated quite flat three times. Then from the fourth to the eighth, yeah, there's a variation in the melody. So you can listen to it uh, while I sing it. And then if you feel that you, you get the tune, uh, of course, please join. Uh, but if you just want to yeah, listen to it, uh, then just listen to it. Uh, so it's said that this tune carries a lot of blessings uh, because its origins are not from within our world. Uh, it came from uh, one of these pure lands.
So one of the things that you can uh, do uh, in using this mantra, uh, this particular tune, is if you want to uh, imagine a lotus bud close in the center of your heart, then at the first Omani Pemeho, this first leaf opens, at the second, the second leaf on this side opens. The, we call the eastern direction, then the southern direction, then in the back, the western direction opens, then the northern direction opens. Then the intermediate fall. This petal opens, this petal over here opens, then this petal in this corner opens, and then this petal in this corner opens. When all eight petals open, then at that point, uh, the jewel that is in the lotus gives out light. Then that's eight times, right? Then you pause a little, then you start again. When you start again, don't imagine the open lotus close again, but a different lotus. 
again in the center of your heart, close, and then the petals open. And as it opens, you want to feel this openness releasing. So whatever that is troubling you, whether some problems that you're worrying over, uh, whether there are some uh, illness or whatever they're experiencing, you can think. As these lotus petals open, you are released from whatever tightness that you're feeling, that you're particularly uh, being, uh, that your freedom is kind of tied, whether it's you know, problems in uh, health, problems in you know, work, problems at home, whatever, or just your own feeling down, whatever. Feel that as these lotus petals. So feel that it's, it's, it's the chant of compassion. It's the call of compassion that is opening it up, opening that leaf. And the call of compassion opening another leaf. The call of compassion opening another leaf. So almost think that it's because of the mantra that the leaf starts to open. Manipadme means the money, which is the jewel, the wish-fulfilling jewel, that is in the padme, which is the lotus, the jewel in the lotus. That's the great compassion. So, so you practice this. Then also, like I said, related to the bado, which we'll talk about today, uh, the six doors to the six realms, the six samsaric realms, all those doors will be closed. So when those doors are closed, then you have only one place that you can go, which is to be free, to be liberated. Any questions about this before we turn our attention to the root verses? not, I have a question. Where did we stop last time? <laughs> did we finish three or two? Two. two? Ah, two. So now the third. And so remember there are six bardo. There is the uh, bardo of this life, right? Uh, then there's, within the bardo of this life, there's the bardo of dreaming. Then the next, within the bardo of this life, is the bardo of meditation. And so we finished the two. So today is the meditation. We start from there. So on page one, kema. Kema is like, uh, oh, it's like, oh. It's a Tibetan expression that is the equivalent of like, oh. You know? uh, so now that the bardo of meditation dawns upon me, uh, which means, each time that we engage in meditation, we should think, we should remember this. I will cast aside all types of deluded wandering and instead enter the boundless state of undistracted non-clinging. Undistracted non-clinging. 
Distraction is the main obstacle to uh, regaining our natural Buddha state. Distraction. So actually, uh, when we meditate, we think uh, sounds, other people talking, uh, other people walking around, that those are distractions. Uh, yes, generally you can say those are distractions because they distract you from doing what you're trying to do. But more basic than that kind of distraction is to be distracted from our basic nature. To be distracted from, in Chinese we call xing. We have strayed away. So straying or distraction is another way of stating what the basic problem is. The basic problem is lack of awareness or avidya or ignorance, we say. But another way to state that ignorance is to state it in terms of straying away from our basic nature, our true nature. So here it says, when you enter this uh, state of meditation, you need to have this determination to say, I will put aside, I will cast aside, I will just stop, let go. What, what do you cast aside? Deluded wandering. This confusion that goes around, wandering around. And instead, so the opposite of wandering or straying or distraction is to enter the boundless state of undistracted non-clinging. Stop clinging to that which is unreal. That which is unreal. And that which is unreal is basically majority of all our experiences. They are unreal. So whenever you want to practice, whether it's six-syllable mantra, something simple like that, or more complex uh, practices, which is in the next line, called development and completion, or more complex practices like that, whatever practice you're going to do, at the beginning you have to have this resolve and say, I am going to cast aside, throw down distractions. I think most of us will say, oh, I, I, I cannot. I get distracted. Well, who is getting distracted? You. If you can say, if you can control your mind, at least as well as you can control your bladder, then it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, next time your mind wanders, think of it as controlling your bladder. 
Just cannot let go, cannot let go, cannot let go. <laughs> It'll be very embarrassing. <laughs> because there is no one watching the way our mind runs, right? So we are unashamed and unembarrassed. So then we let it easy, you know? <laughs> but if you think of wandering in the same way as the consequences of not controlling your bladder, then, then you say, okay, this session, and for beginners, you just say five minutes. This session, no wandering. Because wandering is the equivalent of peeing everywhere. <laughs> then just cannot wonder, no matter what. Hold it in. Then hold. If you can just do five minutes of being undistracted. So the, that those five minutes of undistracted, it feels like there's a lot of energy being spent on it. But as you develop, these are... See, meditation is also uh, like training in the weight room. You're training muscles. So you cannot go in on the first day and say, I'm going to bench 220. Your muscles will be severely injured and you will never come back again. But with the right trainer, they will figure out what's the right way to start training your muscles. Likewise with meditation, you're training your, a particular muscle that most of us, myself included, don't normally use. So then when we start, we have to say, okay, just five minutes. And the five minutes will feel like so much energy you know, is being used to control your mental bladder. Just determine, just be there. But after a while, you don't feel that you need that much energy for that five minutes. Then after a while, you will even begin to, your mind will switch from thinking about control, 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 to noticing that when you're able to do that, when you're able to let your mind just quiet down and be, remain undistracted, a certain kind of joy arises. Yeah, a certain kind of joy arises. At that moment, please don't say, oh, no attachment, no attachment. <laughs> don't worry, you don't have that problem yet. Most of us are not in the danger of being attached to jhana states. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good problem to have much later on the road. Now, when joy arises from the mind being quiet, enjoy that. Very many places in the suttas, the Buddha said that, you know, that the Buddha delighted in hmm, the joy of the jhanas. Because it's joyful. So you have to allow yourself that feeling of release and joy. Then later, someone can help you if you get too stuck on that. That's a much later problem to handle. At this state, you want to kind of 
experience what recognizing uh, or coming in contact with this basic nature what that feeling can be so he says instead enter the boundless state of undistracted non-clinging here non-clinging means uh, not to be distracted by all the stuff it doesn't mean don't cling to your undistracted attention that you need to be firm everything else don't don't feed them and then here it says I will attain steadiness that means I will attain um, familiarity I will attain uh, ability to practice development and completion these are technical terms here is referring to in what we call deity yoga practices seeing yourself realizing your own basic nature through the use of symbolism and mythology now, all these all these images these are symbolism and mythology now, I don't mean it in a negative way I mean it in a positive way because we are beings with body and form then uh, to be able to relate to bodies and forms that that point to inner qualities is very skillful so that is at the heart of deity yoga practice deity yoga is to become the deity here deity is referring to uh, embodiments of enlightened qualities not referring to the nine empress <laughs> those are other kinds of deities yeah. this is talking about these Buddha qualities yeah. deity yoga so in deity yoga practice uh, there are two elements called development and completion uh, development stage is the, is the element where you focus on uh, developing uh, a clear awareness of the form of the deity so the form might be Buddha Shakyamuni the form might be Kuan Yin the form might be Manjushri so whatever it is these forms and some of these forms are very complex a thousand heads a thousand arms each hand has an eye you know, all of that some of them have four legs some of them have six legs <laughs> some of them have only one leg <laughs> but all of these uh, we're not talking about actual beings that walk around like that or not even actual beings that fly around like that or levitate around like that uh, all these whether one leg or four legs uh, they have their inner meaning the four legs is the four what we call the Brahma Viharas in this tradition we call the four immeasurable loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity so whenever you see deities with four legs that means in Sanskrit leg is Pada in Mandarin is two so, so there's a play of words there Pada and also 
So we say Buddha is the chief among the two-legged. Huh? In, in Mandarin is what? Liang Zhu Zhu. But, right, Liang Zhu Zhu. But actually we don't mean the two legs that he has. Ah, the two that we're talking about is wisdom and compassion. The outer meaning is among those with two leggeds, Buddha is supreme. But actually, the inner meaning is his, what he stands on is wisdom and compassion. Now, what is the real legs of a Buddha is wisdom and compassion. Liang Zhu. That's the meaning. So then we say, for example, uh, the 32 major characteristics of a Buddha and the 80 minor characteristics. So altogether, 112. Uh, minor doesn't mean not important. Actually, major and minor are not so good as a translation. It's more, uh, better translation is obvious and subtle. They're equally uh, qualities, special. So it's 112 obvious and subtle characteristics of a Buddha's body. But, mm, and so we say, when we meditate on a Buddha's form, uh, our minds can be subdued. Why? Because each of these characteristics of 112 is the result of having perfected an inner quality. So they all relates to the inner qualities. The one that I always remember is because Buddhas have purified uh, the unskillful uh, act of lying, uh, deception, so his tongue is long and broad. They say Buddha's tongue, if he took it out, can cover his face. <laughs> <laughs> like a frog <laughs> like a dog they say they say the dog's tongue is like Buddha's tongue uh, they, they also say every animal has one sign uh, every animal in nature has one sign frog is the web <laughs> so apparently Buddha's uh, hands and feet uh, this part uh, is like more obvious. Huh, yeah. Wider. Wider. Well, uh, ours is. Huh? Huh? <laughs> so, <laughs> like man from Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> so he also has one sign, like the Buddha. So every animal, they say, have one sign of these 112. Uh, only in Buddhas, all the 112 is present. And it's because for each of these signs, it has to do with one quality. So also in folklore, uh, they say dogs also don't lie. Very honest. Not like cats. <laughs> Very tricky. Dogs, they completely don't know how to trick. They're just... <laughs> they don't know how to lie. They don't know how to trick anyone. They're just... <laughs> What is the monkey quality? I don't know. <laughs> you have to go look, you know. 
Yeah, so the hundred and so the main point here is uh, these hundred and twelve. So on this basis, that's why in Vajrayana we meditate on these forms. Uh, because we we have to understand that these forms that appear on the Buddha's body is the result of uh, those inner qualities. It's not because they are Korean movie stars and they've gone under the knife so many times <laughs> that they have the 112 qualities. They have the 112 characteristics. And this is through the inner qualities. So when we meditate on the Buddha's image and, and think, this is who I am, then we also begin to take on those qualities. But actually, it's not creating the qualities newly. Those qualities are already within us. But when we meditate on the Buddha's form, then what happens is, you can say in a way, it's like um, the, out, the Buddha form that we're meditating on is a catalyst yeah, to uncover the quality we already have inside. Think of it as like, uh, a magnet, uh, or many, many magnets, 112 magnets of a Buddha's form. Uh, and, and for each of our 112 qualities, uh, there is some uh, covering, uh, some metal covering, some iron covering. Then when we meditate, what we're doing is we're having uh, each of these qualities uh, activated as a magnet, a very powerful magnet. It will pull uh, that iron covering off. Then our corresponding virtue manifests, come out. And that's why in Vajrayana we do uh, development stage. But Vajrayana in Malaysia is they don't do development stage. They they do pujas, <laughs> fire pujas, smoke pujas. And then now haze everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> what else? All sorts of things, you know. Then people think, oh, that is Vajrayana. That's not Vajrayana. <laughs> so, if is, is it, is it mean that if the person is developed that state, for example, the quantity one of the body come up, and that person body also will show some uh, significant change, like the ear become longer? <laughs> Then you buy very heavy earrings and then like weightlifting, you know. After one month, you get heavier ones. After two months, you have to get even heavier ones. You can no, that will be plastic surgery. No, not literally like that. Because you have to understand, right? These hundred and twelve qualities. They are Indian standards of beauty. Indian standards of beauty. So that can change. What? If, if Buddhism, if Buddha appeared in China, then a different set of 112 would have been given. So one 
great Tibetan teacher, uh, 20th century. He was a little bit controversial, but uh, now many Tibetans admire him. He was too ahead of his time during his lifetime. And he was uh, basically treated very badly by those in power. He traveled to Sri Lanka, to India, and he learned from all those. Then he came back, you know, but people didn't like him. Uh, Dalai Lama's government didn't like him. They said he's a troublemaker. Uh, but other people really like him. Gindin Chabel. Gindin Chabel, he said, uh, he said, um, all these forms uh, in Vajrayana that we say you meditate on, uh, for example, uh, all the 13 uh, Sambhogakaya ornaments. We say the, that, that uh, like uh, Manjushri uh, appears with a crown, necklace, armlets, uh, uh, anklets, uh, earrings, you know, all these things. Uh, he said it's because Buddhism first appeared in India in this time. Uh, if, if in other times uh, Buddhas appear in other places, then it will be different. Then he said, because uh, Buddha Shakyamuni appeared in India, uh, so then following the traditions of India, uh, in order to communicate with his audience, then the 112 uh, signs of a beautiful form is based on Indian expectations. Likewise, he said, the description of Pure Lands is based on Indian ideas of what is an ideal pure land. And he says, so that's why in India, uh, because there are too many mountains, hard to get from place to place, so they say the pure land is flat. <laughs> yeah? Pure land is flat. So Ganinchapur said, it doesn't mean that pure land is actually flat. It's just that in the Indian mind, Having all these mountains is very troublesome. To go from place to place is so much climbing up and down, up and down. So, pure land is flat. And he said, if, if the Buddha appeared in Tibet, first, Buddha Shakyamuni appeared in Tibet, then I'm sure, he said, the descriptions of pure lands will say that the pure land is filled Huh? With jars and jars of butter. <laughs> because he said Tibetan love butter so much. So I'm sure, you know, if Buddha Shakyamuni had appeared in Tibet, then he will say to the Tibetans, when you get to the Pure Lands, there are all these jars and jars and jars of butter. And jars and jars and jars of very good poor tea. And you can mix those two together and get whatever you want. So that's why in some other religion, they say there are 72 virgins waiting for you. <laughs> but these are all cultural concepts, you know, of wow, when we get there, you know, how great it will be. But, but actually, all these things can change. All these things can change. But of course, it doesn't mean in development stage, we say we meditate on Manjushri, and Manjushri appears in this way and that way. It doesn't mean, or it's not advisable for you to go create your own Manjushri. Okay? And say, now, 
my Manjushri holds an M16. <laughs> Instead of a sword, you say I'm updating Manjushri. Uh, then instead of like uh, so like uh, uh, the great mother Pranyaparamita, the perfection of wisdom, uh, or Manjushri, right? Sword on one side, right? Then up here, flower, flower and on top of the flower is what? A book, right? Uh, then now. <laughs> And it says Google. <laughs> All knowing, you know. But no, we don't we don't improvise like that. Because uh, even though those forms, right, is culturally determined, yeah, culturally determined, but they were not determined by people like you and me. See? They were determined by awakened beings. So there is some level of purity to that. As opposed to you and me making it up. <laughs> they say, don't, don't do that. So when we do development stage practice, we need to have some flexibility. On the one side, yeah, on the one side, uh, there is the tradition. But on the other hand, we cannot just get stuck in the tradition. We have to slightly modify whatever it is we're imagining in a way that belongs to us, that is meaningful to us. So that's really important. Well, we have to do it in a way that belongs, that makes sense to us. Otherwise, your development stage practice will always be very distant. You say, oh, I have to think of this, I have to think of this, 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 think of this. Or you chant, you know, oh, like this, like this, like this, like this, then poof, gone. Because you never take it to heart that I am this. But again, like I said, maybe here people don't have this problem. Because people who practice Vajrayana here don't actually do development stage. They specialize in chanting. They specialize in doing rituals. <laughs> actually, if they specialize in doing ritual, that's already one step more advanced. Because mostly they specialize in paying other people to do rituals. <laughs> I write a name, $50. Oh, there, $10 only. Oh, okay, $10. <laughs> That's our Vajrayana specialization, uh, what I have seen. So at least if you have learned the ritual, you're already one step ahead. Um, just yesterday, <coughs> Kenjan Muje said, he said, uh, he said, I don't know where all these pujas came from. He said, I'm pretty sure during Buddha's time, Nobody was doing pujas. <laughs> he said, and he said, uh, actually, just looking at the text from our own tradition, Dugungkagil, he said, up until the time of uh, Kunga Rinjen, there were no pujas done in the monastery. Huh? Basic puja, yes, huh? like Theravada. Huh? 
basic Buddha puja, morning, evening, yes. But all these elaborate things, you know, with lots of stuff going on. And he said, they're also, you know, quite recent in our tradition. Otherwise, our tradition uh, emphasized more uh, meditating in caves. Yeah. How are you going to bring all your barang barang into the cave? <laughs> all the special effects, you know. But if you really want to practice uh, uh, Vajrayana, then you have to start with development stage. Then completion stage, so development stage is to focus on uh, taking on, imagining all the Buddha qualities in order to bring out your innate Buddha qualities. And there's a lot more if you want to practice this. There's a very systematic way uh, of practicing it. Then, after that, you practice what's known as completion. Completion stage means that uh, in terms of the, the actual formal session, uh, it's when you dissolve the visualization. Right? But when you dissolve the visualization, only the form has been dissolved. Right? The inner qualities are present. Right? Then it says you rest your mind right, in those qualities. And so here is a training in inseparability of form and emptiness. So Vajrayana is based on Mahayana. Mahayana is based on Hinayana. You don't have the Hinayana foundation of renunciation. There's no way to practice Mahayana understanding of form and emptiness. Without Mahayana understanding of form and emptiness, then Vajrayana becomes witchcraft. <laughs> becomes witchcraft. Because there's all these weird looking things. <laughs> Fangs. <laughs> but that's with fangs, you know, blood, <laughs> all these things, right? So completion stage is when you dissolve the form and then you rest in the emptiness. But actually, development and completion stage are not two steps. At any point in the practice, both have to be present. Uh, within generation stage, uh, within development stage, completion stage is present. Within completion stage, development stage is present. It's not like they are two things. It's just a matter of, in terms of one session of practice, the first part is development, focus on development. The second part is focus on completion. But they are always, both of them are present. So this is the meditation that uh, it's highlighting in this third bhajo. For more general audience, you could say, this, you don't need to say, oh, now I need to go practice development and completion. If you don't have that uh, background, if you don't have the conditions to do this practice, then this third bardo of meditation can apply to whatever practice that you're doing. Just remember uh, that here it says that when you have undistracted non-clinging, then you can achieve steadiness. Right? That means constancy. Right? 
That means whatever meditation practice that we do, we want to develop constancy. Don't, you know, don't be what we say in Chinese, what, three days wind, two days rain. Although these days with the haze, maybe good. So don't do this uh, So you have to have constancy in your practice. Uh, so then it says the last line, Now, while I practice one-pointedly, having given up activities, I will not get caught up in deluded emotions. Uh, that is the main problem. Uh, why we practice meditation is so that we don't get caught up in deluded emotions. Uh, or here the Chinese is fan now. Uh, in Sanskrit is klesha. Bali, Kilesha, all these afflictive emotions. <coughs> because we get caught up in it. These are the crazy cats. <laughs> so, no need to kill the crazy cats. Just open the door and get out of the closet. Free all of them. Then the crazy cats all come down. Then they become nice cats. They just play in the big field. Don't bother with them. Then everything is fine. So that's the third barter. Thank you for listening to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting our mission to foster a deeper understanding of the teachings of the Buddha, to build meaningful community, and to integrate contemplative teachings into everyday life. We invite you to make a donation online at udharmanc.com or make a purchase at our store, tibetanspirit.com. Thank you. May all beings benefit.